Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to get customers from scratch uh, using a combination of SEO, paid, and, and conversion rate optimization. Uh, my guest today is uh, the former head of growth at uh, Typeform and is now the head of digital growth for Travelperk. And you've probably have heard of Typeform, you know, it's the survey company uh, based in Barcelona. Travelperk is something, uh, a company that is helping you to, to book travels as a company uh, for your employees. I hope I'm not uh, saying a lie there, but Jake, you'll, you'll tell me if, if I did. So my guest knows a thing or two about getting more customers. Uh, he helped Typeform to scale from zero to 60,000 product signups and zero to 11 people in his team. And today we are really going to talk about what he learned through his experience at Typeform. He stayed there for four years and, and the mistake he made, the lessons he learned so that you uh, listening to this podcast can avoid making the same and learn from it. So Jake Steiner, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, well, you emailed me, so there you go. <laughs> so that's very true. That's very true. You hear all of the famous, you know, growth stories about company reaching amazing numbers, and and they're like, yeah, we skyrocketed from zero to like sixty million in recurring revenue, and everything was so beautiful. There's a lot of survivorship bias, right, in this type of environment. You tend to to really focus on the good things and and forget about the bad things. So together, I want to challenge you to think more about your time at Typeform as what you've learned, the mistake you've made, the things that went well, but and how you would do things differently. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. That's so good. why don't you give us an overview of your journey at Typeform from start to finish without spending a lot of time on the details, but more as a, as a full kind of story in the last four years. So I started at Typeform back in June 2015 number 29. So the team was quite small. And to give some context, there's now like 200 people working at Typeform. So I joined back then as a performance marketer. And my job was to, to validate paid search, right? Because back then Typeform's growth had all came from its um, viral loop. So when you make a Typeform and when you share it, you have the power by button and that creates the, the virality, right? And Typeform managed to grow from zero to 10 million error just from this viral loop. So I came in to see if I could try and grow more linear channels, such as like paid, SU, et cetera. And in the beginning, I was doing a bit of everything as you do, because I was one of the first people in the uh, marketing team. So whether it was like answering emails, partnerships, coupon fraud kind of things, because we had this um, referral scheme, right? Even like data requests, like how many um, questions does the type will have on average? So loads of different things. And then I started to really um, focus on different channels. So I managed to scale paid search to, to, to an extent, which enabled me to um, make a full-time hire to take paid search and paid marketing general to the next level. And then I also grew SEO because what happens with Typeform is we've got so many different use cases. It's not just like forms, you've got surveys, quizzes, um, et cetera. And then you've got sub use cases like job, job application form, contact form. So we found the easiest way to grow Typeform was through these use cases, both paying for it in paid search and also ranking for it organically. So then we grew these, um, diff these channels to quite a large extent. And then um, one thing I tried which failed was um, having decentralized conversion optimization in terms of like landing page optimization. So all of the channel kind of managers were able to 
A-B test landing pages themselves, but what happened is it didn't really actually happen at all. They spent a lot of time in the actual channel, so to speak. So the SEO strategy spent a lot of time trying to optimize for keywords, content plans, models, etc. And in paid marketing, we spent a lot of time in um, Google ads, but we didn't really find enough of the time to really focus on the landing page optimization. So because of that, I decided to centralize the conversion rate optimization side and stuff like landing pages, etc. And we hired a full-time CRO strategist to take on this, to centralize it in one place. And we now centralize all of it in uh, Airtable across the company. So all of the insights are in one place and shared so that we can learn from whatever t- um, departments are doing. Nice. Because the type from the product growth team was split from like the marketing kind of growth team. And now we've been working a lot closer together and having this one central like um, insights hub is super important to draw on different insights and ideas to really grow your channels a lot faster because you can take those those insights. And the team is 10 people now and it's cross-functional. I decided to implement Scrum two-week sprints into the team and we have designers and copywriters all within the team so we can move a lot faster because historically it was a, uh, an agency model where we'd make like requests, but then we would prioritize the requests and they would re- prioritize the requests so double prioritization in the end, we moved a lot slower because we had to re-explain the same thing we'd already have explained before. So having those embedded resources, like what wonders. So that was that was one of one of the big things I I learned at Typeform. So this is kind of like where we are now. So yeah, thanks for 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 painting this this picture. So uh, ten people in the team, including uh, with you, so eleven. Uh, as you said, when you joined, you Typeform was already at 10 million, 10 million in AR. Is that what you said? So when I joined, it was 1 million AR. Okay. But a lot of the things I was doing was like small tests and we were doing a lot of optimization within the product. So we were looking at like heat maps, click maps, etc., trying to optimize like the actual product growth side, like more of like the funnel, because we were trying to see how could we improve the K factor. So like the viral mo- a multiplier of Typeform. And a lot of other stuff that you encounter when you first join a smaller startup, right? Or do the odd things you have to do? Let me stop you there. The K factor, meaning the number of people that you recommend, right? It's like how many people on average mm-hmm. do you recommend? Oh, yes. So, so for every sign up, how many more people do you get? So if one, and so if one person refers one other person, then your K factor is one, because one person refers one person. And if you can get a K factor of more than one, then your product's truly viral because you can create that exponential growth. Yeah, that's like the dream, right? The dream of all people listening. And it's like, so yeah, if you have a 1.01, it means that if you multiply that with one another, it's going to start to to grow exponentially, which is the actual definition of it. I mean, the curve is going to start to really have an exponential shape to it. So thanks for for, for talking me through all of that. Now, if you had to select, like in retrospect, the biggest... The biggest mistake you've made, the things like the, the biggest failure, the things that you've that you really learned the hard way that you felt, okay, the next time I join another company, I would do that differently. What are those? Okay. Starting maybe with the biggest one. Okay. So I guess I'll give you guys the biggest one, which isn't just like my team wide, it's more it's a bigger one. I think it's um when you hire a lot of people, you tend to like silo your teams quite a lot. So we try to paint the perfect picture of what each team could do. And we 
And within like two months, we siloed the teams in marketing. So we all focused on a different metric. One team was focused more like the top of the funnel, brand awareness, PR, et cetera. Another team more on content marketing, but another team more on direct response. But because we siloed the teams, then we have finite resources, right? So it made it a lot harder to get the resources you needed to do the different um, initiatives. And then basically it took us a whole year to get the teams back working together. So from like a one month decision, a whole year to get back together working again. And it was quite painful to be so silent because of course, finite resources, everyone's trying to set, everyone's trying to solve the same problem, but in their own way, right? And, and that causes a lot of problems because it's lack of focus, it's lack of, you have lack of resources. So I guess whenever you, you find yourself in this situation where you don't have enough resources for something, a lot of the time it's because you lack focus, right? And, and if you have less things you're doing and you're working together as like a more holistic team, then you'd like to get bigger successes. Um, so that's one of the biggest. So let me dive um, into mistakes. this. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. I appreciate it. So to, to rephrase it, to make sure I understand you, you basically built a team quite fast and you compartmentalized the team in terms of expertise. So one of them would be not expertise, but also objective. So one of the team would be top of the funnel. So bringing uh, people so that they are aware of, 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 of type form. Another one would be direct response, which would be like uh, AdWords and, and whatnot, or like, and so you, so you have teams that are like specialized in, in each area, correct? Yeah. It's like the awareness funnel. So like if people like solution aware, Mm-hmm. They type in like form, like, like like make a form, make a survey, etc. That's like the more direct response side, and then more like their problem aware, like how to grow my business or this kind of thing. That was like higher top of the awareness funnel. So that's how we kind of decided to split it. Back. Okay, but so you know, terrible had... idea. <laughs> so let's let's dive into why it's a terrible idea. Because even when when you said you know you have silos, like lack of focus, and all of that, it to me it, it, from an outside perspective it doesn't sound like a massive deal, right? Uh, but it's clear that it's quite painful in your mind. And I can see it in your eyes that a lot of, there were a lot of consequences to this decision, right? So in this year where you had to reverse back to that. So yeah. can you explain in, in more detail then the consequences of, of this? What issues did it actually bring up on the day-to-day? There's like a lot of overlap in terms of what we wanted to achieve. So every team wanted to do paid advertising to try and promote their content or trying to reach their cause and first of all we didn't have like three paid marketers to distribute between the three teams you know so by type form back then we say 150 people and we couldn't hire three paid marketers to for um, um for that so in the end we had paid marketing that for direct response team and we're using an agency for the other teams but then if you're and then if things become more complicated right the more kind of like different things you add on the more complex it gets like managing an agency the managing something in-house and then trying to sync it up and then you increase the number of meetings you have right because you have to have the meeting with the agency and you have agency fees you have to calculate in your cat costs and then like every little thing you add on just increases the complexity a lot and then um communication too right so how do you sync up what everyone's doing how do you make sure everyone's aligned and they're not making the same type of content or initiative right because everyone can interpret things in different ways. So it's where the lines blur and where and where don't they blur? You know, so that alignment difficult as well. And then also the namings of the teams. So one team was called awareness and one team for was called acquisition, the direct response team. And then people identify themselves with the name, right? So awareness and acquisition. 
But then when we were sending briefs to this creative team, because we do have embedded resources, but we also had like an internal creative team to work on more of like the cross-channel creative campaigns. Mm -hmm. Like what do they interpret the word acquisition and the word awareness, you know, because after all, your every team is creating awareness, right? The acquisition team creates awareness for Typhoon's brand. And so the, 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 does this awareness team and the awareness team is, is acquiring customers, but from a longer like conversion window funnel stage as well. So that creates confusion as well. And then we built a product growth team around the pirate metrics funnel. So the AARR funnel and one of their teams was called product acquisition team as well. So then, you know, it's just the more you silo things the, the, and the more things you add on, the more complicated it gets. So, and then the more time you spend in alignment meetings and then we had OKRs, like trying to make joint OKRs, like it's just, Can you, you define, spend more time aligning. So just to define a few things you said, you said the uh, ARR uh, framework, which is, which stands for awareness, Acquisition, activation, revenue referral. And then you said said OKR, which stands for objective and key results, right? Exactly, yeah. So main objective, and then you have the key results that are attached to it. So let's say your main objective is to increase sales by 10%, then you have key results that are related to that, which might be to bring 200 new signups per day from exactly. AdWords and et cetera. Okay. So yeah, exactly. what's, what is it such a big deal that uh, you had misalignment issues or you had to stand on and to stay in like alignment meetings? Did it prevent the team to do their job basically? Did it, was there a lot of overlap? So teams were doing the same thing ultimately. And so waste of time. What was the biggest consequence of this? I think one thing is you waste time in, you waste a lot of time in meetings because we weren't just having like these alignment meetings. We were also running like the, the um, scrum ceremony. So like the sprint planning, the battle of refinement, the standups, et cetera. But then people have meetings between themselves to work on like projects. And then suddenly half your week is just meetings. Right. Um, but I think the main thing is more using resources. So like in one team, you could have like PR and, and all the other teams don't have that resource. So one team has paid marketing. The other teams don't. One team has SEO, the other teams don't. You know? So if you try and style yourselves so early on, it's impossible because you just don't have the resources to do it properly. You know, because we all wanted to try and be cross-functional, but then it never really worked. And then in the product growth team, we had like engineering teams, but then in these growth marketing teams, we didn't have any engineers. But then if you're working on SEO, for example, content initiatives, you need these engineering resources too, because the growth acquisition team for the product side was working on, 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 on optimizing the viral loop, right? So we're all trying to do so many different things in the end, we don't really have a big impact, you know? But since then we've learned a lot and now we have a cross-functional SEO team with engineers, designers, like data scientists, everyone in that one team with one goal and it's working much, much better. Okay. So first, thanks so much for, for being so transparent with me and, and the lesson you learned and the mistake you made. So the biggest mistake that you would say was the, the fact that you didn't organize, the team were not organized in terms of uh, around one core objective. They were all organized in terms of their own little ways and their own little expertise. And so what did you, how did you change things around? What, wh- what did you do to, to switch things around from like this one month decision that turned into like a one year struggle to go back to something else? You know, so I guess everyone hates change. No one likes to have these big changes in the team, you know, because when we 
if the company keeps changing the team structures or where people, what people do, where they live, etc., it's a big piece of havoc, right? So I was working with my colleague and we said, look, we've got to work closer together. Let's take more like baby steps to get that. We don't want to do like some big change overnight because we want to, we we don't want like to have like this huge change. We start to make like baby steps to keep us to start working together. You know, so we even had like separate team drives on Google Drive and then people can't even access the documents. You know, it, it was crazy. So what we did is we started to consolidate the teams and we looked to find the um, similarities, right? So the two teams looking at more of the top of the funnel, they started to work a lot closer together because they realized that one team was more like had more people writing content, et cetera. And the other team was more strategic with so like product marketers, et cetera, in that team. So they merged together to create one team. And then we had two teams. Right. And then went from two teams and now we came into one team. So it's kind of like we didn't just do the whole thing overnight. It was a process where every month we made like a change and then we slowly got back to where we were before because when we made the change it was quite a drastic change. And if I could go back in time, I would be yelling and saying, Don't don't do it, stop. <laughs> you don't know what you're gonna get yourselves into. So now the type form is uh, I know you left now at the time uh, you will people will listen to this to this recording you'll have left uh, type form but so how is it organized now and how do you how do you advise companies to organize themselves when they are at this stage That's a very good question I guess when you're when you're like a small marketing or growth team then let's say you're 10 people then you're going to work together anyway I guess the main thing happens when you try and scale Um, so I think the most important thing is to align the whole team over like a key metric or a few metrics, which all the teams go after. Um, so for example, at Typeform, when I was there, we were looking into what is our leading like indicator of revenue. So the whole team could go after that a metric. And so I would say, try and find that common metric to align everyone through that common goal to begin with. Also, I would try and do less things, but do them a, a, a lot better, right? Because I guess in the digital world or in general, there's so many different things that you can do, right? It's like the shiny objects happen all the time. Like you read like an online article or you listen to a podcast like this one and you might have like a new idea that you want to do straight away. You know, so I would say the key to being successful is to do fewer things, but do them much, much better. So keep like a backlog of all your ideas and different things you want to do and then try and plan like these big inflection steps in what you want to achieve. You know, so instead of trying to have, for example, SEO, paid search, Bing, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all up and running, instead of taking like this more extensive approach where you're kind of like mediocre in all the channels, just choose one or two channels max and be really good at them. You know, and then because at the end of the day, Um, the resources are finite. You don't have all these copyrights to make all of these ads, all of these designers, all these different formats. How are you going to aggregate all of the data from all the channels and do the analysis? Like all these, it's just really complicated. So stick with like find one or two channels, for example, that work or, or like um, initiatives, and really work and scale them and go deep on them. So I think that would be my my best advice and and my biggest um, learning. And I guess. It works better once you have a key objective. Let's say increase monthly recurring revenue by 50%. And then the marketing team, one of the key results they need to achieve is like increase conversion rate by 20%. And everyone in the team works towards that, right? So it's easier then to select the things that you should double down mm -hmm. on. And it's easier to let go of the things that are not, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Or what you can do is like, it's not always as simple as having like one metric. So sometimes you might want to focus more on retention or acquisition. So you can even theme a quarter or a year or half a year on, on one specific metric. And then everyone works towards that goal. And then you can always like switch to like a slightly different metric at a different time. Um, and I guess that's the concept of the OKRs. So the OKRs is where you want to create that focus and for the team to create that big inflection and a change or a result. And at the same time, you always have like your ongoing things, which usually is called business as usual that you're always doing, that you always need to do. But then these OKRs are for having that big focus, you know, in a quarterly or half a year to create that big like dent in your strategy and really go all in and, and, and making like a big success. But thanks for sharing this first big mistake. So you're saying that this is the biggest one by far, right? Yeah, definitely. The definitely biggest lesson. Not necessarily, I don't want to frame it in a negative manner, right? Let's not say uh -huh. that, you, that you fucked up all the way. <laughs> Everyone in this type of situation would have done like similar mistakes or even worse. And I think you did pretty well for yourself. So kudos on that. Um, so I don't want to frame it in a ne negative way, more in terms of what you would learn and what you would do differently, mm -hmm. which you already said. So thanks for that. If you had to say like the second one, the second biggest mistake, the, the biggest thing that you've done or that you and the team, the decision you've made that you would do differently next time, what would it be? I think another one was when hiring people, I think we tried to be too specific on what their job role would be um, instead of being more generalist, you know. So I guess you always jump to a conclusion. So we were trying to find someone who for example, could manage the US market for paid search, for example, which is a super granular thing to do. Um, because right when I left in the team, we had two people focusing on like SEM, so like Google Ads and Bing, and then one person focusing on paid social. And in hindsight, instead of focusing on like very specific areas of expertise, we should have had more generalists, so for example, paid marketer, performance marketer, who could have been a bit more agile and done different things rather than focused on like one specific job or function, if that what's, makes sense. It does. And what's the, what's, what are the problems when it comes to that? Why is it a, an issue when you, when you look for big speci like specialists? Is it a, a struggle to find good candidates to fill the role or something else? I think the main thing is like the business changes a lot. So you might hire someone, but then you want to focus on something different. So I think when you're trying to still figure out what channels you really want to invest in and which are going to scale for your business, I think it's more important to hire the generalist roles because you can be a bit more flexible, if that makes sense. So, for example, when I left for paid social, we were focusing all of our attention on retargeting. And it was, for example, 10% of the total ad spend. So we had one person on 10% of the ad spend and two people on 90%. It doesn't make any sense, you know. So um, when you want to like pivot and change what you're working on, it's, I think it's much better to hire someone more generalist and T-shaped rather than hiring more like specific people. Because I think when a lot of people, you try and aspire to be a lot bigger than you actually are by trying to segment and put things in like groupings rather than doing being more generalist. And, and it comes back to the same learning as before with um, starting the teams, right? You, you, you try and maybe you aspire to be like a bigger company, or you look up to them, like trying to put things into groupings or departments. But in reality, you want to be more, more free and flexible to, to um, change. Yeah, I, I concur in what you said. In my experience as well, a few times where that happened, you, what tends to happen if you try to hire a specialist, 
is that you focus a bit too much on their specialization and the skills you need and forget a bit about the culture, the passion and the personality and the match that they have with the company, right? And so you end up with someone who might be super, very, like extremely good at what they do, very technical specialist, but might not be 100% fit for the company. While if you hire generally someone who doesn't necessarily have 10 years of experience in a, in a field, but has the passion and the personality to, to, to learn new stuff and, and fight, it seems like the second type works better because they are willing to, to be agile and move around. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I guess it wasn't a case in type form when we had people, they were, they could do other skills. So right. when we had someone from paid social, like before they had experience in paid search and, and vice versa, right? So I guess when we chose people, we made sure they were T-shaped, but then people come in with the belief they're going to work on a certain thing, but then you want to pivot and you want to change to something else. And also with alignment too, right? So if you have like two different, two people focusing on one thing, so on another thing, you want to align the different channels. So we might have, so we had different retargeting ads, right? So we had like some copy in Facebook and different copy on GDN and YouTube. So then every like siloing or just creates more complexity. Right? So I guess keep it simple is my biggest takeaway piece of advice. Is there any, uh, any other problems or consequences of, of hiring for too specialized that you can think of? I guess the only other thing is you might pivot and try and find another role for them in the company, but then you also specialize it. And then what happens is one person doesn't know really what their role is and they keep changing or they feel like their role keeps changing. But if you were to give them more of a generalist title, maybe even just awesome marketer, I don't know, mm -hmm. <laughs> then um, at least in that sense, they, they know and understand that they're going to be doing different things and that's what excites them. And they don't have this feeling of my job keeps changing or I keep having to pivot and do different things. So we don't feel like they're in limbo. They actually feel and know it's part of their job and they enjoy doing different things. So I think that's like another benefit for the person as well nice and let's go through the third mistake right um that that you feel people could learn from and that definitely you 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 will remember and not do again so what what would be the, the, the third biggest one i think the third one i don't know if it's the biggest but i'll give you like another mistake learning was in typeforms rebranded so i'm rebranding so we've rebranded typeform it went from lots of different colors to like a logo with like a circle that moves on it <laughs> and all of these like hairs like we even had some comments from users saying hey there's a hair on my screen but it's just for new brand right because it's like the, the hairs so we had <laughs> so we had some of those comments that wasn't the mistake by the way <laughs> the mistake came when we had to rebrand our landing pages so in the end we decided to use unbounce for all of the paid landing pages because it was a lot faster to to iterate on without any de developing uh, developer resources and the designers could make them super fast. Um, but we remade them in the new brand, right? But um, the biggest mistake was that when we remade them, we didn't have the exact same, because what we wanted to do in, in the beginning was test the new brand style, but with exactly the same content. But in the process of doing it, we actually removed two of the three testimonials on the page. And when we ran it through an A-B test, we actually, we actually had a, a decrease in, in conversion rate from click to sign up. And then we had to recreate the page with the actual social proof. So we had a big learning on the power that social proof has on the landing page and, and what it, how it impacts the um, conversion rates. And to go back to the rebranding and the positioning of, of, of Typeform, 
What was the trigger behind it? What was the core reason why you decided to rebrand? Okay, so the core reason was there was no kind of like system behind the brands in the beginning. It was kind of like um, the founder made the brand and then we kept adding different things to it from different designers. There was like no system, there was no guidelines. And then everyone had a different feeling of what Typhoon meant to them, but no one kind of like aligned under what does Typhoon really mean. So we had like this big rebranding process, which took, I think, half a year or something, where like a group of people in the company really went deep into what does Typhoon mean, what does it stand for, etc. And then from that, they created the brand from the value proposition which Typhoon found. And then they created the um, design from that. So that was kind of like the, the trigger to, again, around alignment, right? To align the brand so it's consistent. And so that internally everyone's aligned on what it actually means, what Typhoon's brand means, and how can we communicate that brand as well? And then a big um, rebranding process from all of the different web properties and products. And did you see any cons business consequences to not having a brand that is super unified? So that's super hard to measure, I guess, to have like a clunky brand is hard. It's super hard to measure that. We haven't, we, we didn't do any like specific tests to measure that. The only, the only data point I can give you is that when we did actually include those three testimonials on the page to rebrand that landing page, we did have an increase in um, signups by around, I think it was around 7% or something. So we did increase signups by just having a new brand on them. Um, which was surprising because we thought it would be insignificant just by changing the design, but actually impacted the uh, conversion rate. So we had a positive increase there. But the main objective was really to unify everything, to have a system in place that everyone inside yeah, and yeah, yeah. outside would understand. And the bonus was actually, it's actually increased conversion a bit. Yeah, yeah exactly that too. So, so that was the main aim around it. And I think even now they're still trying to align the design systems because We still had one design system for the product and another one for what we call the, the brand, mm -hmm. which was more the web properties. And then we need to find that middle ground so that they both speak to each other. So when you use the product, you feel like you're still in the same brand as the website and the ads, etc. So they're still working on that now. Right. Makes sense. Well, th thanks for sharing those, those three big mistakes and lessons learned. So I'm curious now. If you had to do it again, and let's say you're joining a team or let's say you're joining as the first head of growth or, or similar role and you don't necessarily have a team with you. And I know it's very much dependent on the type of companies we're talking about and, yeah. and the stages and stuff, but there might be some first principles and things that will never change that you can apply. So you are actually starting a new role, but let's take a fictional example. If you had to start something new, joining as the head of marketing or head of growth, what would you put in place for sure or what principles would you apply in your marketing to make sure that you were successful okay so start is the company complete from like from from scratch no like not necessarily i don't think it, i don't think it would be fair but at least they have product market fit so the product and you know there is there is some sales going on maybe at one million two million in in recurring revenue uh so it's quite early stage uh but they're looking okay. to scale So like what type of principles or marketing principle would you bring with you to, to make sure that the company is successful? What would you do? Okay. I'd put a rule in and say, don't silo teams ever. <laughs> okay. No siloing of teams. Do not do that. Like make a post and put on the wall or something. I don't know. Or, someone's, or even because in Slack, you can set up those alerts when you, when Slack detects something. So if I like detect the word silo, I'd be jumping in that channel and saying, hey, don't do that. <laughs> so like no siloing, like you need to work together on common things. So it's really about like understanding 
what opportunities does the company have for for growth and finding what is that metric that the company or the growth team can align upon, you know? So whether it's that activation metric inside of the product, which is the leading indicator for revenue, for example, and, and creating that alignment. Um, and then when you grow, you everyone tries to solve the same problem in their own way, right? So I would I, I would have like a marketing-wide roadmap or backlog of like the different um, initiatives that you want to carry out. And then every quarter, you can align that through like a tentative quarterly kind of roadmap because obviously things change, et cetera. And then, and so for me, the most important thing is, is the metric and the alignment. I think if everyone's aligned, then um, you're going to save yourself a lot of time and problems. And I'd also focus on knowing how to validate different things, you know. So instead of just trying to do something and, and you think you're going to keep on doing it, how can you validate something and if it works scale it or if it doesn't work move on to the next thing as well great so thanks for that let me dive into that with you so the first thing is you said you would identify a metric to go after to move the needle basically so how would you go about that how do you go about discovering the one objective that you really need to to nail what do you look at it's a very difficult question <laughs> it takes a lot of time to find that one metric it's usually like an activation metric within your we're, we're, and within your product. So can you define so, activation? So I guess activation is usually the time when the user signs up and then has that aha, aha moment or finds the value of your product. And every product is completely different. And people usually change the activation metric as their product changes or they learn new things about their, their customers, etc. You know, So it's not easy. It's not easy to define. But I guess it's that one like metric where... The conversion rate afterwards to revenue does, is quite stable, right? So, so you can predict the revenue from that. So, for example, at Typeform, the conversion window on average will stay 90 days, but this activation metric happened in seven days. So, if we know that the activation metric is going north, then we know then we can predict how much revenue we're going to get in the future. So, for example, from the activation metric, if it's a 10% conversion rate and it's quite stable week on week, then that's a good activation metric to choose from so at Typeform they were looking at people who signed up created a Typeform and pressed the preview button and that was the metric which fired for um, what we were looking at for the leading indicator of, of revenue and that's what we would feed the algorithms in say paid search Facebook etc to optimize around to find people likely to fire this metric and then from that we can look in the short term and predict the future Right, because when we're looking at ROI, and when we want to tell the finance team, hey, this is how much ROI we made, we didn't just divide the number of people who went, who paid, and the ad spend. We looked at how many people clicked on an ad and paid within the same month, and then we predicted the next year of um, revenue, and then we had to predict a like a predictive ROI model, which is quite complicated, but it was needed when you have such a lagging, a lagging um, revenue number. So let me, let me try to rephrase what you said so that I understand it. You would basically look at the indicator that growth of the marketing team can influence that has, that has the highest kind of correlation with revenue in the future. Uh-huh. In Typeform and other companies that have like freemium model where you can use the product for free, you can have a lag between the time someone signed up for your product for free and start paying. Definitely. And yeah, definitely. So one way to find 
that is to find the correlation between the behavior that people take and the likelihood that they will pay. And what you said for Typeform was, if someone, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if someone sign up and within seven days click on the preview button and within 90 days start to pay, then they are going to be they are much more likely to, to stick around or am I absolutely butchering what you just said? Yeah, so people signed up, created Typeform and clicked on preview. That was the best leading indicator of um, retention and revenue that we okay. had. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like the first step that you would take in if you are to join a new company like that is actually to identify this leading indicator. You would actually work hard to identify what is the, the core leading indicator that growth or marketing can influence so that we can just put all of our effort into that and align the team around it. And as you said, you said that basically all your ads and all algorithm would be fired and optimized for this conversion instead of optimizing for sign-up, for example. Exactly. So yeah. instead, of instead of teaching the AdWords algorithm to show ads to people who are more likely to sign up, you're teaching the AdWords algorithm to find people who are more likely to activate, more likely to discover this aha moment. Exactly, yeah. Because previously we were trying to optimize around the customer numbers, but because we had so little on like for every campaign, it wasn't enough to feed the algorithm. But then you have an, a load of sign-up numbers, but then you can't really predict the review from them because you know they're not all the best quality, but they don't all qualify to use your product, etc. So you have to find the metric between your sign-up and your customer somewhere in the middle that you can then feed the algorithm because they're deeper in your funnel, they're higher quality, and you have a lot of them, which will enable you to use machine learning through the advertising algorithms to find more people like that, but not as... Vanity is a sign-up. Exactly, because sign-up is what we call vanity metric. It has no indication whatsoever. If you just look at sign-up as an action, that has no indication whatsoever if this person will be likely to pay or not in the freemium model, because you don't know who they are, why, where they're coming from and whatnot. It's difficult to kind of extract the key learning out of this on this podcast and go through it because you literally need data analysts to help you to dive into the product metrics and do cohort analysis of are people, people who are using this tool more likely to become customer than people who are not using this tool? Or are people reading the blog more likely to become good signups? Of course. You need to dive into it, right? But it sounds yeah. like the, the principle behind it is like, do not pick, first of all, you need to pick an objective, but do not pick an objective that is not correlated to revenue. That is a vanity metric that CEOs and CMOs and head of marketing is usually hate. Because they are like, oh, we bring a lot of signups this month. Oh, but we didn't see an increase in revenue. Exactly. So try and avoid like the vanity metrics because like if they increase, but then your revenue doesn't increase at the same rate, then it's a vanity metric. Right? And you shouldn't optimize around that because before we were, but then in some markets you can get a lot of signups quite cheaply, but then they don't convert into revenue. Right. So you need to find that something in the middle ground. So you'd have this one metric that you picked, uh, this, this, if possible, that actually that must correlate with revenue so that you bring the actual thing that the business needs because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters or even profit at the end of the day. So it even, could, could be even more, could, could be lifetime value. Not only the revenue for the first six months could be lifetime value of customer, the more like the ones that are going to use the support the less and spend the most and the biggest value customers. So now we have that. Let's say it's like, let's increase that by 20%. Then you said that you would actually make sure to align the team around it, right? So let's say you pick a 20% metric that is directly correlated to kind of revenue growth, because as a marketing or growth team, this is what you need to show. 
uh, not vanity metric or, or anything like that, but actually growth. So let's say you have that. How do you go then about aligning the team, which is the second thing you mentioned? How do you go about telling them, this is the mission that we have, this is what we need to go for? So I guess, like I said before, like one system we used in Typeform was the OKR setting system. So we set every quarter, we had like three or four or five OKRs for the whole marketing team that we all aligned around, which then all pointed towards that particular metric. And also when you manage like a backlog, so maybe you have like a Google Sheets backlog, like prioritized by like different initiatives, then you can actually have a column where you say, what metrics does this initiative push? And if it's the metric you're focusing on in that particular quarter, then it's a good candidate to become an OKR, for example. You know, so I guess it's more around like these OKRs that everyone aligns around. And then what we did is we have a weekly, we had a weekly OKR check-in every Monday where the whole team got together and then we checked in on the OKRs to see how far we were off them, et cetera, to, to reinforce that um, alignment we had and to see our progress. And in terms of the backlog, let's say you have a backlog of ideas, because at the start, when you get started, usually that's what happens, right? You have a full list of things you could be doing that influence mm -hmm. the objective you have. How do you then go about prioritizing the ones that you, that you have to do for the quarter? So I think it's quite a common framework. So we use the ICE framework. So ICE, one is impact. So how big is the impact of the initiative? Um, C is confident. So how confident are we that it's actually going to work? Like, have we done something similar before? Um, have we had, do we have experience from it? Or is it just from like, um, have we just read it online? And, or is it just some idea that no one's ever done before? And then the last one is ease. How easy is it for us to do it? How long does it take? Do you need any additional resources? Is it just you? Or is it like design and copy as well? And then based on that, you can create a score out of say 15 or 30, or however you want to score it. And then from that, you can, you can prioritize depending on these um, different metrics. And then you talked about having a roadmap for the quarter, let's say, so with the key initiative. So I'm, am I right in assuming that you, take, you would take this backlog and prioritize it based on what you said, and then kind of map out your quarter with those initiatives? Yeah, exactly. So I guess when you look at what are the company goals, so first the whole company has to be aligned, right? But then afterwards, you can align the marketing around the company goals or the growth team, and then you can um, take the top initiatives and then you can create your roadmap. And ideally, you should have done like a lot of research beforehand on those initiatives. Like when you set your roadmap, it shouldn't be to figure things out. It should be to really do those things, right? To double down on those things and really push them forward more because you can fall into the trap where you have like an objective, which is to increase signups. But then you focus half of the quarter or a good part of the quarter trying to figure out what to do to get those signups, where you should be spending the previous quarter to create your backlog and then work on those things, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like a rolling kind of like backlog. It does. So you need to, so that's kind of the business as usual thing that you mentioned, right? It's something that you need to spend the time every day, every quarter, every week doing, which is to research, to get to know your users better, to identify opportunities of improvements and problems and where people drop and a lot of other stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then we always split things in between things we want to validate and things we want to double down on, right? So we, we always have that separation. So we would never just say, hey, let's do a load of blog articles and create this huge blog. It's we have this hypothesis that say content marketing on a blog is a great idea to attract new signups to type form. 
what do we need to validate that? How many articles should we publish? How many resources does it need? And most like that success factor, that would mean that at the end, we would say, let's actually roll us out fully, maybe even hire people and really double down on this initiative. Because I think the trap a lot of people fall into is they try and say, hey, let's create this blog and let's just keep making blog posts. You know, But when do you, when do you draw the line and say, this isn't working or this is working, let's scale it or let's cut it and focus on something different. So, so I think it's important to think of things in, in either it, you're trying to validate something new and you have a hypothesis or you've already validated something before and you want to double down it and, and really scale it and push more resources in, in, um, into it. So we came up with this concept in type form called business as usual acceleration, where we'd accelerate something which is already proven. We want to put all of our resources onto it. Uh, we wanted to put all of our resources into it to really scale it up and make a big kind of like inflection point in the growth of that particular initiative instead of trying to do lots of little mini things, for example. Right. So that's that's very, very insightful. So the making sure that you realize you see you, you would start, you'd kind of audit what is currently going on, what is currently working, what is currently not. And it seems like there is a few things that are currently working that you need to double down on. There's a few things you'd like to try that you'd need to validate. And as long as all of that is linked to your objective for your team for the quarter, then you're good to go. But then it seems like you always want to anticipate for the future quarter by doing further research on, yes. uh, on all of that. Exactly. And what you can do already is you can draw like a matrix map and you can think of all the things you're currently doing and you can put them into that matrix. So you can think of what things are we doing which aren't fully validated, what things can be scaled and what things are scaling. And then we did that at type form and we realized we had too many things in like the invalidation phase and we stopped half of them and we just cut half of them and we just focused on. So instead of doing like eight things, we did four things. In the matrix, what is the what would be the horizontal graph? The horizontal one is is it like how have you validated it? Okay, so it's a yes and or no, validated or not, or is it somewhat validated? Do you have an in between? Yeah, yeah, it's like how how like it's like your confidence okay. for scaling, right? And okay. the other one is how much have you scaled? Are you maxing out on something? Like have you fully like um, harvested all of the demand through paid search, or is there a lot? Of, a lot where you could go if you had additional resources to create more landing pages, for example. So a horizontal line would be confidence to scale and vertical would be scaled. Is it like how... Exactly. How, did you reach the ceiling or not? Meaning like for, exactly. for AdWords, there's a limited amount of people every day that will search for certain terms. So if you're super well optimized for AdWords, it means that you are like you show ads for all of those and you can't really invent demand for it. You can't really create there is a limited number of people, right? So that's kind of how it would work. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly, that's, that, that's the point. And if you map this out like right now, then um, you might realize you have too many things in validation or too few things in validation, right? So then you can try and think of what kind of portfolio do you want to create to ensure that you're always validating new things and you're also trying to scale initiative things to have like a really healthy portfolio of initiatives to, to, um, for um, growth. Well, so yeah, uh, Jake, thanks so much for sharing all of that insights with me. And I know people listening right now are probably uh, quite happy as well. It's a lot of learning, a lot of mistakes, but a lot of lessons. You've learned a lot for sure uh, through this experience. And thanks for taking the time to do it. I have a few questions, three questions left before I, uh, I let you go. First one, what do you think uh, marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years or 50 years? So what do I think they should learn? So the way things are moving is more into like machine learning side of things. So for example, 
this is like tentative timing. So for example, say three years ago on Facebook ads, people were focusing on the demographics of who you were targeting. And then say a year and a half ago, everyone was focused on lookalike audiences to try and find um, customers to prospect for them. But then recently, now you just set the conversion and you set the age and nothing else. And then um, Facebook is able to use its machine learning to find customers for you. So, and, and because of things are moving more to machine learning, um, then I think, I think people will need to spend more time on really understanding their customers and what makes them, and really what makes them tick compared to focusing more on like the optimization side of things because machines are obviously going to take over that side. So the true differentiator for you is actually going to be more on the branding side. So the way things are going to go is more branding, you know, because the barrier to entry for technology is less and less. So the functional benefits your company have can be easily replicated. So I think there's going to, there is a big shift to more focusing on the brand aspect, more customer centricity. So um, I think that that is definitely going to be the focus. What are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners today? It could be anything like a book, podcast, anything. Okay. So one of my top resources that I'd recommend, which may sound surprising, but it helped me a, a lot to learn and like um, grow my career would actually just buy a LinkedIn premium subscription and just network with people. It sounds so obvious, but a lot of the things I learned and what I'm talking about today is, is because I actually decided to um, outreach to different people and, and, and chat to them and learn, you know, so, so that's one of the main things I've done to, to really learn. Like you can learn more than you would learn in a book, for example, because obviously it's, it's, it's a dialogue, not just, you're not just having like a passive reading session. So definitely it's not like the obvious choice of things that I would recommend, but for sure don't underestimate like networking and, and having that network with you. Another thing that I would recommend is actually, it is a book and it's a very good book. And um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called um, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. So a lot of people that I know haven't read it, but I think it's a must read if you really want to like go into marketing. It covers so many things and you find out every single thing you do always goes back to one of the points made in this book. So by all means, I would definitely like get this book it's like a and um read it reread it again and really study that book and then the last thing so the point i made looking more to customer centricity is i would actually recommend typeform <laughs> because um actually let me uh, mention it one one thing we did do is instead of having like one of those more aggressive pop-ups on our landing pages is we had a exit intent typeform survey so when people left we asked them hey like why why don't you want to sign up today And then we asked them some different questions. And from that, we were able to improve the conversion rates on the landing page. So I guess the point is to really understand the customer through just speaking to them. So I think there's going to be a shift away from focusing more like these highly analytical tools like heat maps, click maps, even like multi-touch attribution models. I think we're going to go back more old, um, old school and just speak to customers more and say, hey, how, what, like, where did you hear about us from? And make that your attribution model. Or say, hey, why didn't you want to use our product? And they and then they tell you. So, like, stop using like heat maps, click maps, data driven, crazy attribution models, and just and just speak to your customers. You know. So, so yeah. yeah, amen to that. Completely agree. 
back to basics, back to first principles. And the, the book by Cialdini is a great example of that. It's the first principles of how people actually behave and how they think. That things that will never change because humans are not going to change in the next 10 years. Uh, we are all going to be the same than 100 years ago, 500 years ago. But Jake, yeah, once again, thanks so much for, for, for sharing your insights, sharing your mistakes, sharing lessons. Uh, it was really interesting. So I suppose uh, I was about to ask you where can listeners connect with you, but I think LinkedIn is, is the, the answer, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is definitely the answer. Yeah. So how do they find you? It's Jake Steiner. How do you spell your name? The whole name, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully it's from the podcast, so you can just like copy and paste it into LinkedIn and find me there. So but if you want me to spell it out, it's J-A-K-E-S-T-A-I-N-E-R. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks again, Jake. Thank you as well. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also... Uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again, and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. 
I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.